Okay, verses 1 through 20 of Mark chapter 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of, out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs in the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. Or in verse 6. But when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. And a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Verse 14 now. Well, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and so the people were really afraid. And those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs also. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus did not let him go. But he said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the, in the Decapolis, that's the ten Gentile cities, Roman cities there on the eastern shore of Galilee, how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. So today we get to dive into the biblical perspective of evil. And um, I should tell you up front, it's worth noting right from the beginning, and maybe you felt this when we were reading the passage, that this subject seems a bit woo-woo for us modern people. It seems weird in this, it, it, especially for society like ours, it feels ridiculous, primitive, regressive to believe in you know, e an evil, spiritual, personal, supernatural force marauding itself behind the scenes in the world. Um, critters, my school professor liked to call them, spiritual critters. They are actually active, influencing us in some mysterious, hidden part in how the world and how the world works. We don't, we don't like to think about this, do we? We might like to watch a scary movie and like to, you know, there's there's something fun in making ourselves scared, you know, watching something creepy. It's a genre. It's a film genre. It's a kind of book you can read. But when it comes to reality, we think well. I, we like to shove that out of our minds. And the reason for the skepticism in our culture is because we live in a society, it's just very reasonable, we live in a society with a, with a secular worldview. That is, we only believe in the material, things that we can see, touch, measure, those types of things. We're a materialistic, materialist society. We believe that there is a scientific explanation for every phenomenon. We don't see a phenomenon, then we, we, don't, we think scientifically, then therefore it cannot be. We only believe in the material, not in the immaterial in this culture that we believe in. So therefore, in a society that's absolutely sure that God does not exist, it's perfectly reasonable and consistent to say that evil doesn't exist. It's pretty, it, just, it's, it follows from that starting point. If God doesn't exist, if the supernatural doesn't exist, then evil, certainly evil cannot exist. See, the two, the two ideas go hand in hand. It's illogical, for example, for us, for those of you that are Christians, it's illogical to believe that a personal good force could exist and yet not to believe that personal evil could exist. That would be illogical because your starting point is different. 
But most people in the world, um, they know, especially outside of the West, most people in the world know that it's virtually impossible to prove that God does not exist. Did you It's virtually impossible to prove that God does not exist, which is why most of the world, especially out of the West, believe in a God. They believe in a a supernatural force for good. And most of the world, by the way, other than the Western part, um, would see zero mystery in the story that's before us. They think this way all the time. And if a personal supernatural force for good could exist, why in the world could a supernatural force for evil not exist? My point is, it's not ridiculous, it's not illogical, it's perfectly logical and perfectly consistent with with the world view if your starting point is with a God. You believe in some uh, personal supernatural force for good. Um, It may be a foreign thought for us, it may be something we're unfamiliar with, but it's certainly not illogical. It's reasonable. In fact, here's what I'm going to argue. I'm going to argue that a worldview that discounts the presence of evil simply can't account for what we see in reality. It's not good enough. A materialistic worldview is not good enough to account for what we see out those doors or in my own life or in world history, for example. And therefore, let me go even further, discounting evil dangerously reduces and underestimates the problem of the world that we live in. I want to say it again. Discounting evil dangerously reduces and underestimates the problems of the world that we are living in. In other words, I'm saying that it is impossible to account for all the evil and wickedness we see throughout human history and every day in our current world by attributing, by attributing it to mere human factors. Like, well, it's bad choices, lack of opportunity, bad upbringing, um, a not efficient distribution of wealth, uh, all of those things. It's an oppressive, abusive environment. Those, those things might be true. Those things might be part of it. But those things by themselves, I'm arguing, and I think the Bible would argue, those things can't account for what we see, for what we experience. It doesn't account for it. The materialist explanation of evil, just quite frankly, is is inadequate for just what we see and experience. It's unsatisfactory. Drive down Aurora and look at the people stuck in addiction in your neighborhood. Think about the dynamics of your own family, good people, people just like you that are somehow sucked, sucked into these evil systems that crush other people. How does that happen? No one, you know, no one signs up for a political, career, a political career up front and says, I know, by the time I'm done with this, my goal is to oppress more people and amass power for myself. No one starts that way. And yet, little by little, they can get sucked into this. How does that happen? How does that happen? Today, uh, in this passage, um, I want to argue that ignoring the possibility of evil actually hamstrings us and puts us in more danger. Today in this passage, we're going to see the Bible's perspective of evil. We're going to learn a few things, three things. We're going to learn the pervasiveness of evil. It's pervasive according to the Bible. That means it's everywhere. There are critters everywhere. And we'll we'll unpack that a little bit more. Um, We're going to see the way of evil, the way it works the way it gets its hooks in, the way, the way it's influencing you right now, the way it works its dynamics in your family. We're, and then finally, the good news we'll, we'll see in this passage is the defeat of evil and how we participate in that and how we can perpetuate defeat, the defeat of evil in our own lives. Okay, so lots to say, lots to jump in with. Really important stuff, really important worldview. Number one, according to the Bible, evil is pervasive. Let's look at the first verse. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Again, right out of the gate, we modern people read this and immediately think something like, well, back then they didn't understand how the world works, and so they just put superstition everywhere. They didn't get things like disease or 
epilepsy or mental illness or those types of things. And so, you know, this poor regressive culture, they were just simplistic. They didn't know what they were saying. And so they just, everything that they couldn't explain, they said, oh, there's something evil there. There's an evil spirit. That's typically what we think. But I want to point out that the Bible's portrayal of evil is much more complicated and nuanced than that. Although the Bible sees evil as being pervasive, that is, everywhere, it is far more nuanced, complex, and multidimensional than we give it credit for. And I will say the Bible, amongst any other ancient religion uh, or, or, uh, or ancient text's description of evil. For, let me give you an example. For example, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, um, we see that the news of Jesus had spread throughout all the region, and people brought to him the ill, the demon-possessed, the lunatics, the paralyzed, and he healed them all. That's a direct quote. People brought to him, quote, the ill, the demon-possessed, lunatics, the paralyzed, and he healed them all. In other words, the Bible knows that evil comes in many different forms that interlock, that overlap. Here, the Bible differentiates in Matthew 4 between demon possession and disease. The Bible's not going around just saying demon there, demon there, there's a demon there, there's a demon there. No, the Bible is much more complex than that. It can say that kind of evil is breaking down the body. That's a mental kind of illness. And then there's a spiritual kind of brokenness as well. Um, they know the difference between the, a physiological kind of problem and a spiritual demonic kind of problem. Now listen, both are under the umbrella of problem, <laughs> evil. Both are there and both may overlap, but there's a difference also. Even more interesting than that is that this text says that they brought to him not only the diseased and the demon-possessed, but the, quote, the word is a, a word we don't use anymore because it sounds, it's become pejorative in our culture, lunatics as well. The original Greek word um, for this meant anyone inflicted by insanity, irrational behaviors, or seizures. That's what the Greek lexicon says. The point is, the Bible understands the difference between insanity, mental illness, epilepsy, disease, and demon possession. They are all all of them fit under this umbrella of evil. They are all either a product of or an outworking of or intertwined with or a direct manifestation of evil, but they're all under that category. They're all part of brokenness. And you can see this in our scripture as well. On the one hand, you have this man who has made some kind of pact or arrangement with evil that has him now completely um, possessed, out of control of his own life. And we'll get, into him and we'll get into him in more detail in a moment because it's important. But listen, look what else you have. You see this nuance in the passage. You also have a cultural system of evil in the passage as well. You can see that peppered throughout the text with words like country, region, city, area. Let me read the text to you again and I, I will emphasize it. Look, you see two dimensions here. Look it. They went across to the lake to the, here it is, region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got off the boat, here's a man, an individual with an impure spirit from the tombs to meet them. This man, so there's a person, lived in the tombs and no one could bind him, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot and he tore the chains apart and broke the irons in his feet. Uh, no one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day in the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his feet in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. And look, look at what the, what the demonic spirits, one of, his, one of the demonic spirits' number one concerns is. Look at And he begged Jesus, look what it says, again and again, over and over again, not to do what? Not to send them out of the area, a territory, a culture, a society, a region. Skip to verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and countryside, and the people, that means society, Many individuals bring, making up a society went out to see what happened. And when they came, they saw the man, there's one person, 
who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were, that is, society was afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what, told the people what had happened to the, to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people, again, that is society, what is their response? What is society's response, the cultural response, the region's response, the country's response? They began to plead with Jesus to leave their region their area, their territory. Remember, that was one of the demon's main concerns. Remember, they didn't want to leave the region and now the people want Jesus to leave. Do you see what's happening here? Verse 19, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man um, who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but he said, go, here it is, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, like I told you, that's 10 cities. That's like a, that's a whole region made up of 10 Gentile cities on the eastern shore of, of Galilee. Tell them how much Jesus had done for you and all the people were amazed. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see the the nuance of Evil Hill here? There is a relationship between these demons and the region or the area or a territory. There is something going on here. There's some kind of relationship. And here we see the Bible's very complex view of the nature of evil at work in similar and yet different ways in each society. There's something of that going on here in Seattle. Here's how it works. Many, many individuals make up a society made of many individuals. And that society, depending on its values, its desires, its worldviews, its belief systems, etc., etc., they draw in and influence more individuals which both change and give momentum to that society and eventually form its own culture. That's what's going on here in Seattle or any major area. People, depending on their shared likes, differences, all of those things are following a certain trend. So how does, ev- how does evil come into the equation? Because the humanist would end right there. A materialist, an anthropologist, a sociologist would end there. Or even, a, um, even an Austrian economicist would say, hey, the money just tells us where the people's, where the people's hearts are at. It's, it's not good, it's not bad, it just tells us what people are into. It's how we read the tea leaves of society. That's what the economy does. But they would end there. How does, but the Bible goes further. How would evil come into this? Well, I could tell you, but I'm gonna have to geek, geek out on you for a few minutes. Is that okay? Can we have a little Bible geek session? I promise I won't go, I, won't, I promise your, your eyes hopefully won't, your eyelids won't begin to close. I'll try to make it interesting, and it'll only be a few seconds, but I think it's um, incredible. First, we need to understand that demonic forces have inhabited human culture according to the Bible. The Bible calls spiritual beings an array of different things, but particularly what's useful for us. The Bible calls spiritual beings sons of God. That's one of its main terms, the sons of God. That's Genesis chapter six, where that shows up. The Bible calls spiritual beings, um, quote, rulers and authorities. That's another general phrase for spiritual beings throughout the Bible. And um, a a real interesting one for our our purposes is found in Psalm 82 uh, called the divine counsel. These are all synonymous phrases to describe spiritual beings. And according to the Bible, the sons of God or this divine counsel was there in the beginning. Did you know they were there in the beginning at creation praising God for his greatness and his creative power in the universe? You can read about that in Job chapter 38. Let me read it to you. It says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Remember the whole uh, 37 chapters leading up to this point, Job's asking God a bunch of questions. And then in chapter 38, God shows up and God says, who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? <laughs> who is this that's complaining and doesn't know anything? Does the uh, dress for action like a man, he says, I will question you and you will make it known to me, Job. 
I'd be intimidated right then. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? What's he talking about? He's talking about creation, the creation of the world. Who determined its measure? Surely you know, Job. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases, where were its bases sunk? Or who laid its, its cornerstone? And here it is. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So here we have this picture in the beginning, the creative process of God, that the this, this sons of God, this, this um, divine council, if you would, is around him going, this is awesome. We're praising your work, O oh God. Well done. Righteous and true are your judgments. This is great. There are even places in the Bible, by the way, where God invites this divine counsel to participate in making a decision. Really interesting passages, kind of tucked away in the dark corners of Scripture that we don't like to deal with because they're, they're hard to understand. For example, when they help decide how to bring down the corrupt King Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 19 through 20, there's this prophet named Micaiah who sees this vision of God in heaven. He sees this vision of God in heaven and he's surrounded by a host of heaven on either side of him and God asks them, quote, who will entice Ahab that he might go up to this battle and die there? God's asking for participation and uh, Micaiah says that one being said this, another being said that, so they're throwing out suggestions to God. We could do it like this. Well, have we thought about it? So it's kind of like God's staff team. He's having like a staff meeting <laughs> in heaven, so to speak. So does God, and the question is, why does God need a staff, a staff meeting? Isn't he all powerful? Yes. Isn't he omniscient? Yes. Does he, does, can anybody bring input that he doesn't know? No, absolutely not. God is all-powerful. He is omniscient. The Bible makes that incredibly clear. And yet, evidently, the God of the Bible likes to share authority with others. This is one of his main MOs. He likes to share. In fact, God shares his rule with human beings on the earth. He's asked us to participate. We get to make decisions based on his kingdom. We get to, to propagate his his kingdom. That's what, in fact, that's our purpose. That's why we're here. We're here to bring worship and bring the world into order under the worship of the king. We get to participate. The Bible, Paul the Apostle says that someday we will rule in the heavenly places like the angels. God likes to share authority. And in some way, in the same way, there is a parallel story of God sharing his authority with spiritual partners as well. There are major hints of that throughout the scriptures. Well, most scholars now believe that part of this heavenly council rebelled against God as well sometime before the creation of the world, sometime in eternity past or somewhere that this heavenly council also rebelled against God. In Genesis chapter 3, we meet one of these creatures who is in the state of rebellion against his, his creator. We're not told, um, we're not told why or how he rebels in that passage. But he's, we, what's clear in that passage in Genesis 3 is that this evil creature is on this mission to destroy God's blessings for all other creatures, to drag the world back into a state of chaos, back into a state of darkness, to thwart and pervert all the good purposes of God. This creature, Listen, this is important. This creature is the Bible's first portrait of evil. The, the principle of, hermeneutically, the principle of first mention, where something is first mentioned in the Bible, usually has some pretty incredible clues. The first portrait of evil, and he distorts what God has purposed for good. He ruins and it's not, it's, uh, it's not that he is for anything. He's anti-everything. That's the idea. And from this, and to, our, to the reader's great shock, as you're reading the Bible, if you're reading the Bible for the very first time, the, to the reader's great shock, in chapter three of the Bible, three pages in or so, we read that humans actually join this spiritual rebellion which leads them back to chaos and death. And here's why this is important. From this point on, 
we see that human rebellion in the Bible is always interwoven with and in lockstep with this spiritual rebellion. This sets up a really perfect foundation, a great backdrop for us to understand the Bible's perspective of evil. That is that there's some kind of symbiotic relationship going on between the evil that's going on in us and in world history, the dynamics that are in your family, that are in your life. There's some kind of partnership happening there between what's going on in you and something spiritual that's happening also. And there's no way, these are never separated. The Bible would not view a category for human problems, which involves psychology, how you were raised, um, the socioeconomic status, oppression, government. That's all over here. And then there's this other realm of spiritual evil. And man, hopefully they never mix. But boy, when they do, it's really bad. That's not how the Bible sees it. The Bible sees they're always somehow complexly Not simply, but somehow there's some kind of an interlock agreement going on between the two. So that's why there's no um, perfect formula to understand evil or cast out evil in someone's life. There's no like formulaic way of doing it because it's always complex. There's a lot of mystery and yet it's, it's, um, I'm thinking of something that gets deeped into something and you can't separate the two out. They're different substances, and yet they're bled into each other at the same time. They're bedfellows, if you would. And then we have this um, interesting story, um, really interesting story of the building of Babylon and the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. There, in an ultimate show of hubris, humanity tries to make a way um, to heaven without God. Apart from God. You know, there's a famous story. You know the story. God steps in. He tears down this tower and he scatters humanity into different people groups and into different nations. You could say different areas, regions, um, territories. Okay? And here's what's really, really interesting. When Moses looks back on the Tower of Babel event, When he looks back on this, here's what he says. This is Deuteronomy chapter 32. Here's what Moses saw something much more than just human rebellion there. He also saw something else. Let me read it to you. Moses says this. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, a direct reference to the Tower of Babel, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people. Here's what Moses says, you ready? According to the number of the sons of God. Again, most scholars believe that there were members of this divine council who, like humans, didn't want to represent God's authority anymore. They wanted their own authority. They wanted to be God, so they rebelled against them. So these fall against him. So these fallen beings deceived humans into worshiping them instead of the Creator God. So Babylon, in our Bible, Babylon becomes the biblical image for the combined human and spiritual rebellion, and it describes how evil works. There's a combined thing going on. God scatters the people from Babylon into different nations and gives them over to these rulers of, of these fallen beings, fallen spiritual beings. It reminds me of Romans 1. So God gave them over. There's a giving over. So, according to this, the nations have been handed over to fallen spiritual rulers. There's territories. Remember the prince of Persia in Daniel chapter 10? When Daniel's praying and an angel comes and says, sorry, I was delayed. I I got in a battle over Persia with the prince of Persia and I had to call for backup and Michael the archangel came and took care of it and then I was... There was some kind of a war. In other words, there's a spiritual realm, the Bible would say, and things are not right there. Things are broken there too. 
Paul says, this famous passage, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual authorities in, heavenly, in the heavenly places. In other words, there is no, whatever, I'll just get, it gets creepy. Whatever you're dealing with has a spiritual element. Think of your marriage. Think of your struggles. Think of your life. Think of the things that haunt you. There is an element there, according to the Bible, if I'm true to Scripture, there is an element of that that is not just you. There's a dynamic to that. So, demons are spiritual forces behind corrupt human structures, societies, and cultures, and that is what we see in Mark chapter 5. I'm going to read that again because I think it's important. Demons, here's our definition, based on what we've come to so far, based on the evidence we've gathered so far, demons are spiritual forces behind corrupt human structures, societies, and cultures. This this corrupt Greek society in Mark chapter 5, the Decapolis, is being influenced and ran by demonic forces. How? They're exploiting the greed and selfishness in the people's hearts of that region. That's how they gain power. As in every region, they're making agreements with evil desires in people's hearts, power, money, all of those things. And it's a, it's a well, let's see how it works. How does it work? How does evil get access into the culture? What's the way of evil? Think of your culture. Think of the things that you're going. Learn to see the world in this way. How is this working? Well, evil inhabits all cultures, okay? Evil, evil inhabits all cultures by influencing all people through their corrupt, sinful hearts. That's the formula we're working with here. So um, one scholar put it like, uh, you know, a guitar. A guitar is useless by itself. It needs a player to play it. There's a, there's a relationship going on there. A guitar player can't make music without a guitar. A guitar can't make music without the player. So the, there's, there are spiritual forces that are strumming certain strings in your hearts that vibrate with others. Hatred, bitterness, pride, greed. And that's reverberating, pitchforking all around. And others are going to it depending on what side they fall. And soon a culture is formed. Values are formed Narratives are seen, lies are believed, oaths are made, secret handshakes are made. In fact, at worst case, evil can inhabit people. That's what we see here, a worst case scenario. Let's turn back to our story in the book of Mark. Um, Look at the way of evil in this man's life. First, notice this. This is, uh, again, I so appreciate the Bible for this. Notice that evil in this man's life both empowers and enslaves him. Uh, Let me read it. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet them. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Notice that when this man makes a pact with evil, on the one hand, he's empowered. He has great strength, like superhuman kind of strength. No one can hold him down. No one can stop him. He's untouchable. There's a sense where there's no limits for him anymore. He's free, in a sense, to live in a way that no one else can live, in a power that no one else has access to. But on the other hand, at the same moment, he's also enslaved. He's in the tombs. He's tormented. His humanity is being eaten away. He's cutting himself, hurting himself. So you have empowerment And at the exact same time, you've got this inner enslavement going on all at the same time. This man has lost himself. He's lost his self-identity. And this is how evil is working to some degree. This is one of the more creepy points of the... (laughs) This is how evil is working in some degree with you and me in all of our lives and in society. And it works like this. Anything more important to your meaning in life 
more important to your sense of self-worth, anything more important to your happiness, to your contentment, anything more important, um, anything more important than the Lord, than God, that is your real master. We're talking about idolatry. That is your real master. There's an agreement that you've made. You've given over allegiance or some kind of control of your heart, your mind, over to that person or over to that thing or over to that idea or over to that narrative. Your view of reality, right or wrong, you've given yourself to it and therefore there is an abdication of the throne, so to speak. You have power. You've made a pact with something. And whatever that is, whatever is truly at the center of your heart is your Lord and Master. What is the center of your heart? I'm asking you, don't answer me, but for you, this is the point where you need. What is it for me? The main thing that you're seeking, here's how you know. In an honest moment with yourself, the time that you say, if I have that, then I'll be okay. If I could just achieve that, then I'll be fine. Then I'll be worthy of love. Then I'll have identity. Then I'll have proved that I am something. Then I'll have worth. If I could just get to this point, or if I could just get this person's attention, if this organization could see me, if I could just, if I could just, if I could just, whatever the blank is in that statement, if I could just blank, then that is your master, and you've made some kind of a pact or agreement, and to that degree, it has control over you. That's what's getting you up out of bed in the morning. That's what makes you keep going. Now, here's what's so hard about this, because on the one hand, this is empowering. Um, I went to, years ago, I went to a Michael Buble concert um, in Portland, at the Rose Garden in Portland, and it was amazing. The guy is so talented. It was phenomenal, and there was something like 15,000 people that came to see him. And it was just in, one of the most incredible concerts. Uh, a man with true talent. But he was talking about his journey to fame on the stage. And he said, he was speaking, you know, cavalierly. But he said, if you only knew the things that I've had to do to get to this moment, you would think I'm weird. He said, he goes, if you just knew. He goes, I can't even share some of the things I've had to do to get here. I'm assuming, you fill in the blank, the people I've had to walk over, the ethics I've had to compromise, the parts of myself. Now, on the one hand, that gave him great power, didn't it? If you're thinking to yourself, I'm not anything unless I this, what does that do? That's going to get you to show up before everyone else. You'll leave, when, you'll leave after everyone else leaves. You'll put in more time. You'll know, everyone, you'll know the subject better than anyone else knows the subject. There's a lot of empowerment in that. If fame is it, if career is it, But at the same time, you become enslaved. Your humanity starts to be taken, starts to be eaten away. And this is how it works. We wonder, how do normal good people get entrapped in these systems that crush other people? When you meet people, And you find out, okay, they're they're normal just like me. They're nice people just like me. And yet they believe something that's just crazy. And you think, how, how in the world does something like that happen? And that brings me to my second point in this. The answer is gradually. Gradually. Um, you see it in the text when it says, no one could bind this man, here's the word, anymore. That tells me that this enslavement to him was gradual. At one point, people could bind him. Maybe someone could do something, but at some point, it reached a point where he was, un, he was completely taken over. And this is how it goes. In the, beginning, you feel, in the beginning, you feel the power way more than you feel the enslavement. You get, kind of get drunk on the power of it. Maybe the accolades, the awards, the attention. People are noticing your effort 
You're starting to feel that deposit into your identity that you're worth something. Oh, finally, I fit. Finally, I have somewhere I belong. Finally, this is what I'm known for. And the power way outweighs the noise of the enslavement, the the little compromises that you've made. But then slowly, little by little, maybe it takes years, but eventually things changed, and before you know it, you're in the tombs. You're out of control. You've lost. Evil is almost always something that doesn't come at you all at once. You know that? Very rarely does evil come straight at a person and say, I'm evil. And you go, oh, okay. Right? It comes at you in little agreements, barters, messages that are in the subconscious of your own mind, voices, exchanges, gradual little alterations in your course, justifications. Well, I guess, that, I guess that's not as bad as I thought it was. Well, yeah, I did do that, but it, it, the end justifies the means. I did it because if I don't, then this happens. I'm, I'm sure this is how the political environment is in Washington. I'm sure of it. On, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, you go in there with the greatest intentions. I'm sure of it. These freshman senators and congressmen go in there thinking, I get to make a difference. And they mean it. They have good intentions. But they realize they have to make deals. Sure, I'll give you this if you give me that. Well, I want onto this committee. Well, you can come onto this committee if you write this into the bill. But it's not what my people want. Well, I guess you're not going to get far in this town. Okay. And little by little, month after month, year after year, you turn into something different. You look back and you think, how did I get here? The answer is gradually, slowly, little by little. And that's how it works. That's how cultures are formed. That's how societies are made. People start doing this on mass levels. Our elites start selling different messages. People begin to gradually give in to these kinds of narratives. We begin to think in certain ways. We abandon old ways of thinking. And it gets convoluted and it gets really complex. And before you know it, it's a society. And it's based on what? It's based on what we want. Here, the story is a story of greed with this, this idea of these pigs. <laughs> I racked my brain. I looked through so many things as to find out what is the deal with these pigs? What's up with the pigs? Because none of it, and to be honest, I did not find a satisfying answer. In fact, one thing that most scholars agree on is that they don't really know (laughs) what these pigs are all about. And I've heard a lot of people give their best shots at it. But one thing, another thing they all agree agree about is um, these pigs, 2,000 of these pigs had to do with money. And there's a, I mean, basically Jesus is saying there is, you know, I don't care how much wealth is lost to save, the, to save one man's soul. You see, the economy of Christ, I'll sink an economy to save one man's soul. See? But see, how does that happen with wealth, with greed, with career? Well, we may start making agreements. And a society that's built on more, 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 uh, you know, climb the, 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 the corporate ladder, uh, work, 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 uh, you know, Uh, consume, 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 consume. There is a spiritual element to that way of thinking, to that philosophy, and to that way of operating. The point is, you may think you're in charge, but you're not. Here's how... Every one of us is being influenced here. Here's how I know. In 1 Timothy, Paul says that if you're proud, if you're proud, you open yourself up to the power of the devil. Anybody struggle with pride in here? I'm hoping that the goosebumps start and the the hair on the back, you know, that you're starting to feel that creepy feeling because you should, really. It's a form of agreement. Pride is a pact. I deserve. I'm entitled to. It's a narrative that you're saying, 
shake on that. I'm a victim, so I should be able to. There's something going on there. In Ephesians, Paul says that bitterness, holding a grudge, resentment make us open to the influence of Satan. That's Ephesians chapter 4, 26 through 27. This is an agreement. When you entertain bitterness, hatred, and you decide to take sides and be in league with something, there's a spirit. Think of our, think of our culture right now. Think of the hatred that's going on. Think of the polarization. Think of the tribalism. Think of the, 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 the people that are, that are cutting off relationships, vital, beautiful relationships over something. There's something culturally going on. There's something spiritual going on, you see. I don't want you to walk out of here and read the news and watch TV and take in all that's going around you and limit it to, oh, it's those people in the White House or it's this person over here or it's this, this, there. I, 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 I don't do social media anymore for this reason because people are like, stupid this. If these stupid people, and then people on that side are saying, well, if these stupid people, do you realize that's something demonic? In a sense, that's, that is the problem. I was talking to one person. I said, look, we gotta, we get, it's the hatred that's the problem. Not the issues, but the hatred is, is a real problem. We, we need to start with us. And, and she said, I'll start when they start doing that to me, when they start treating me with respect. And, I, and she's a beautiful Christian. And I said, look, if heaven would have waited for us to get our stuff together, we'd all be going to hell. Jesus, who was perfectly in the right, gave up his rights and came down for us. Why? And that's how he did this. It was a spiritual battle. And that's what leads us into our final point. Okay, so let's look at how Jesus defeats this evil. So if there's bitterness in your life, if there's anger, if there's unforgiveness, you need to understand forgiving somebody is not just like really good for you. So you don't develop anxiety and cancer and all sorts of physical problems. Like our culture eats that stuff up. It's true, but we're a, we're a materialist culture. We're living for the here and now. So when we hear that something like anger and, and stuff is giving us a brain tumor or something, we go, ooh, I mean, that sticks. But the Bible says, yes, let's go further than that. There's something spiritual happening, and therefore there's a sacrament. There's something sacred to forgiving someone. Something is released there's, there's, an, there's a spiritual defeat that happens when we forgive our spouses, when we forgive our uh, relatives, when we forgive somebody that still is, we believe, is in the wrong. We still haven't reconciled, but we say, I still forgive you. I can hold disagreement and love in the same space. There's something, that is spiritual warfare, the Bible would say. Let's look at how Jesus defeats evil. First, we defeat evil in our lives by recognizing the only source of power that can defeat it, and that is Jesus. Did you see? The, look at the power of this. When this man saw Jesus, he just sees Jesus afar off. He, something happened. He recognized power in Jesus, and he runs to this man. He runs to Jesus, and he falls at his feet. Here's this man full of demons. The word legion is a Roman word that means something like 6,000. Six or thousands of is completely overrun. And yet, Jesus simply says, come out. And, and the, these thousands of demons are down at Jesus' feet begging him, don't torment us, don't hurt us, don't send us out. Look at the power. It's effortless. It's like uh, a few chapters ago when Jesus calmed the storm. It's the same type of thing. It's effortless. Jesus doesn't roll up his sleeves when he sees this guy and crack his and say, come out and there's this you know and then Jesus is exhausted Jesus sees the guy with 6,000 of these spiritual forces or whatever how many thousands and he says come out and immediately there's submission don't hurt me power raw power number one realize who has the real power in your life here's the, here's the good news if you're a Christian if you're a believer, that means that God, a fact in time, God put his spirit to rule and reign in you. 
I gotta let that sink in, you know, you know. In other words, you are no longer under the power of the kingdom of darkness. That is an absolute fact. You need to understand. The Bible does not um, make that a subjective thing. It talks about an objective point in your history. When you said, yes, when you said, I'm gonna take off the old man and I'm gonna put on the new. When, I, when you said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust my life under the lordship of Jesus Christ, a transaction happened, an agreement, the agreement happened, and God put his spirit in you and you no longer are under the power of the, of the evil one. So first is recognizing power and believing it. So here's how it works. In your mind, in your family, in our society, is an information war. There is something in you called indwelling sin, Romans chapter 6 says, and it, in league with evil, is trying to get you to think that they're still in control, that they still have power, that you're addicted, that you can't stop, that you'll never get over it, that you'll never get better, that you'll never get out of this, that you'll, that you'll, that you'll, it, it is, it's an information more. It is truly the fake news of the universe if you're a Christian. See, a lot of us, we are not in bondage. We think we are. This is spiritual warfare. There, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you put your life under the lordship of Christ, you, I'll put it in Paul's words, sin no longer has dominion over you. Full stop, period. Let not sin, therefore, reign and rule in your mortal bodies. So he says, let not, because of the recognition of that power, you are now empowered. Let not sin rule and reign in your mortal bodies. In other words, it's no longer, it has power over you. Look at the power of Jesus. Come out. That's the power that lives in you. The Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You are free, Christian. You're under new ownership, new management, and that will never change. That will never stop. And this is where true mental toughness comes along. And this is where community comes along, where we remind each other. This is why we've got to be together. Because when someone comes to me and says, Mike, I'll never, I just, I'll just never be free of this. This is just something I'm gonna have to deal with my whole life. I can because they shared that with me. That's why the Bible says confess to one another so you can be healed because the other person can say, hey, you just used the word never. I'm hearing a narrative in your mind that you are, that you are weak, that you're under control of this thing. Do you think that's true? And I'm, what am I doing? I'm challenging the information. I'm leading you through a process where you can say, wait a second, that's not true. I just think it is. Or there's no hope for this marriage. We'll never, we'll never stop. The, it's just better if we just broke up. If you, you bring that to your people, your safe people, they can say, okay, I get how you feel, but do you think that's true? He says he's the God of all hope. We'll walk through this with you. We have power in Christ. We can see a miracle. There's power. If you doubt that there's power to change, man, we're, I'm sitting at the piano and we give this time for gratitude and I hear a voice say, thank you God for 20 years of sobriety. Okay, you asked Jameson if that was possible before. That's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of God in that man's life. There's no other explanation for that. Yes, change is possible. Absolutely change is possible. We hold it back because we don't, we're sitting, in a, we're sitting in, a, in a jail cell and the door's wide open and we're sitting there going, I wish I was free, I wish I was free. The door's open. And sanctification is the Holy Spirit leading us through those belief systems to set us free. That's power. Um, secondly, look, at the end of the story, we see the man healed, sitting clothed and in his right mind. It's so, it's so beautiful. <laughs> it 
This could only happen because at the end of the book of Mark, this, how does Jesus get his, store, his, his power? This can only happen because at the end of the book of Mark, Jesus switches places with this man. You know that. By the end of the book of Mark, we see Jesus overrun by darkness and driven into the tomb. That's how, okay, so here's my point. How did Jesus defeat evil? By absorbing it. By, through his weakness. By letting it have him. That's how Jesus has the authority and the power to beat evil. Let me read this to you. This is Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Listen, this is such a powerful verse. It says, and you who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses and all of our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with, with its legal demand. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Ready? Nailing it to the cross. When he did that, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. When he died on the cross, he broke the power structure. He broke his back. He shut it down once and for all. That's how he has authority over your life because you're under the blood of Christ if you're a believer. You take communion today, it's saying I am trusting in the authority, the blood, the payment that Jesus made for me. I belong to someone else, I'm not my own. That's why we do it every week. It's important to remember every week what it means. There's power in remembering what it means. It, it changes the way you think, changes the way you look at the world and at yourself. Finally, Notice he defeated evil in the short term, but he's got a long-term plan. So uh, I say evil's defeated, because it's true. Jesus triumphs over evil, and it's true. But you're still gonna go out there and you're gonna run into it. If you come and serve with us on Sunday nights, you're gonna see people who are still overrun by evil. And hopefully because of this passage and your understanding has changed, you'll look at them differently. You'll see them as both broken and beautiful. You'll see their own problems, but not just their own problems. You'll see alliances, agreements, oaths, things, something that has happened there. And you won't, you'll look at them as someone that is helpless and you'll have compassion. It'll arouse your empathy if you look at the world through this lens. And you'll, and you'll have hope for them. You can know that God is powerful enough. The power of Jesus can set anyone free. Anyone free. The, the person that you run into the store that's talking to themselves or the, the guy that's screaming in the middle of the street or whatever the case might be. That used to be some of us. That was this man. And now he's sitting clothed in his right mind. Power, you'll have hope for people. You'll see, you'll see brokenness, you'll see evil, but you'll see hope and compassion of God. You'll believe in that. But let's look, notice that he defeats evil one person at a time. Look at, look at verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, but he, but he did not permit him. And he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And what mercy, okay, this is, I think, the tension of every Christian, is, is it not? Those of us who have been rescued by Jesus and who know the wonder of Jesus and who love Jesus, not just have a title Christian, but love Jesus. On the one hand, do we not long to be with Jesus? Is it hard to be here on this planet? Is it hard to be here in Seattle? Is it tough to feel the grind? Of course, we would say, God, take me with you, and yet... This is, our, this is our lot. He says to you, no. Stay in this very difficult place. Stay and tell others. Shine your light. Live free in this society, in this place. Love people the way I loved you. Show people the mercies of God. Proclaim, I've been sober for 20 years and the reasons why. Tell your story. 
Why? Because, well, we went through it. Salvation takes, heart, uh, takes root in individuals' hearts. And individuals, that salvation story starts to ping to one another and we, be, we form a society. And you guys will go out into the culture, into your jobs, into the workforce, into your families, into the politics, into all of those things with this regenerated pinging going on. And more, it, will, it will cause more to come and give momentum and momentum and momentum and the kingdom of God multiplies and grows and multiplies and grows until the final resurrection, the final harvest where all evil will be done away with and eradicated forever. That doesn't happen unless you stay. I don't mean just stay physically in Seattle, stay mentally Engage. Read the news. Look at the culture with this biblical grid where you see both this human and evil intertwining thing going on where you have compassion and hope where you're not gonna uh, you know, go underground and shield yourself. Somebody just sent me a great quote from Alistair Begg. I, I didn't write it down because I didn't think I was... I didn't think it had anything to do with right now, but it does. Alistair Begg says, God's people are in danger of two extremes. One, being absorbed by the culture, thereby having people to talk to and yet nothing to say. Or, being isolated from the culture, having something to say and no one to talk to. Those are the two, that's where we find ourselves, people. Either we're completely absorbed by it and we take on, we, we agree with it and we become part of the system and we become like salt that loses its saltiness. We become like light that, 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 that no longer, that we put a basket over it. We have, we have people to talk to but nothing to say. Or we vilify the culture. We isolate from it. We start speaking of it in those people, them, if they would just and we stay away and with those stupid people and we become part of, the, part of the spiritual dynamic that's going on and we have something to say but no one's listening. You know it's, it's possible to speak truth and still be very wrong. The Bible says speaking the truth without, without love, you know what the Bible says about that. It's just annoying. You stupid people, you die. I listened to a Christian podcast the other day where the people, the person was like, why aren't you Christians just wake up? You're so dumb and blah, blah. And I was like, off. I can't, even if she's right, I just can't do it. I can't do it. Because there's not love there. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It's truth and love. That's where we're at. And it's one person at a time, loving one person at a time, giving a meal to one homeless person at a time, smiling at them, saying that I notice you, I see you, you're not insignificant to me, I still see you, you're made in the image of God. <laughs> this last week, um, there was, I was at a coffee shop studying and I was on the phone with Nicole and uh, we were just talking and she looked out the front of the porch because she thought a package was delivered and there was a homeless man camping on our porch. On our, on our porch, right outside the front. She couldn't open the door. <laughs> so we had to call the police and I had to run over there and I had to be really firm with the guy. Hey, you can't, this is not okay for you to be here. Except it was much more firm than that. And you know, I had to make a point. This is not for you to come and hang around. This is where my family lives and all of that. And the noble rebukes me. He goes, Dad, you need to be nice to him because he's still the image of God. <laughs> Point well taken. He is. And though we have to be firm and we have to put up boundaries and we still have to live, we can still not, but we, I can be firm without hatred. I can be firm and set a point and still care. Those two things can exist together. 
one person at a time. Here's the thing. A few chapters later, Jesus will return to this region. Do you know that? So look, the region, the culture says, please leave. Get out of here. We don't want you. Jesus tells this man, he says, I want to go with you. Jesus says, no. I want, we'll be together another time, for all time. But for now, stay here and tell people, love people. And it says that he went into the Decapolis, these 10 cities, and he told people of the mercies of God. Now listen, here's what's interesting. A few chapters later, Jesus returns to this region and it's a completely different place. Let me read it to you. This is chapter six, verse 53. It says, when they crossed over, again, crossed over the lake to the same region, they came to the land of Gennesaret, which is a more specific description of that general reason, region of the, uh, the uh, Gadarenes, and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, ready? The people immediately recognized Jesus and they ran about the whole, here's our word, region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was and wherever he came, in the villages, in the cities, in the countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that, they might that he might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as he touched, they were made well. Completely different culture. Completely different place. So, socially. What you're doing here in Seattle, what we're doing here in Seattle, what you're doing in your family, it makes a difference. Don't grow weary in doing good. What, is it, what does that mean? Tell people of the glory of God. Tell of his mercy. Be grateful. Talk about his forgiveness. Talk about it among each other. Uh, stir it up and heat it up in each other. Tell each other stories. Talk about those types of things. That's how we do that together and that's how we, well, evil has been defeated, and that's how it will, the decisive victory was on the cross, but we will also take part in, in advancing this victory to the end of eternity. Purpose for you. Amen? Amen.